Hi there, and thanks for listening to Shim Satira's podcast series, Sounds Like Folk. My name is Joanne Barry, and I'm the Repertory Director with the National Folk Theatre at Shim Satira. My involvement with Shimsa began as a nine-year-old child, and I've been working with the company as a performer, teacher, and all-round folky for the last 15 years. We welcome in the beginnings of spring and hope for a brighter year as we continue to honour the creative impulse to swap our stories and engage with our audience. This podcast honours and celebrates the tradition of Bohan Tiacht, or gathering together, allowing a window into Shim Satira, which itself was born from a coming together of like-minded people, a place where ideas and stories are celebrated. My guest today is multi-award winning opera, music theatre composer, librettist and stage director, Connor Mitchell. I first met Connor in 2013 when he composed the score for Sheamus' production, Imigain. A double Ivor Novello nominee and double Fringe First winner, he is the recipient of the Arts Council Northern Ireland Major Individual Artists Award, the highest honour bestowed by the agency, and a Life Fellow of the Arts Foundation for Composition. As founder and artistic director of the Belfast Ensemble, his most recent new chamber work, Lunaria, was performed at the Queen Elizabeth Hall as part of PRSF's New Music Biennial and broadcast on BBC Three New Music Show. His radical chamber opera, Abomination, a DUP opera, was listed in the top 10 classical works of 2019 and won Best Opera Production at the 2020 Irish Times Theatre Awards. He is currently composer-in-residence at Wexford Opera Festival. Enjoy the chat. Well, it's Uh, good to see you. Good to see you. How's everything going? Yeah, good, good. We're surviving. Um, Yeah, it's been a a wild couple of years. So we met each other first in 2013. (gasps) Oh, my God. And thanks so much for doing this. This is brilliant because I've been dying to talk to you with all your uh, accolades and, and and I know it's all like scary in, in its uh, entirety, but you've done so much since I've seen you last. I feel like we need to go, like we probably need hours to dissect it all, but we won't. I won't keep you for hours, I promise. It seems like, you know, just with, you spoke about your work there going to the Abbey soon, which is so exciting, and Mass and the Belfast Ensemble and all these big big moments you know they've really they've really it's really all happened in the last couple of years hasn't it but I'd love to talk about the Belfast Ensemble just to put all your work into context for everyone yeah how did that that ensemble come about the Belfast Ensemble was uh I suppose the company was a product of a lot of different things coming together at the same time and for me, the big thing was that I had never wanted to be just a composer, ever. So when I started off working, um, it was always in a theatrical context. And the first shows I did, even when I was at school and right through college and university, and then when I first moved to London, I was directing them all. So I was creating a kind of mise-en-scene for all the shows that I wrote yeah. and was... I suppose a bit of a megalomaniac because I I really wanted to see, I was more interested, I suppose, in the scenic design, jumping into the musical score. 
And then at some point in that, I started to write text, but that was purely out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those early years, I started to create quite successful pieces that I think were just ones that I was taking to harbor myself. Mm-hmm. Then at some point, uh, about two, three years into my career, I started just uh, doing incidental music for plays. And that was because there's so few people that do that. Um, that kind of started to really dominate my career. And then I started being hired to write musical theater scores and a kind of whole avenue of just providing the music in a theatrical context mm. um, became what I did, but it was never my life plan. I wanted to really be in control, I think, of a total vision and then start to find a troupe or an ensemble that I could work with to kind of mold that vision. And it was just something that got, I think, sidelined by the necessity of trying to make a living. So around 2015, 16, I really, I said, look, the clock is ticking on this. I really want to start making my own pieces, but I really want to design the sets. And I really want control over the lights. And I'd quite like to work with the actor. So me and an actress called Abigail McGibbon. I mean, it's so grand. We were an ensemble of two people. <laughs> uh, it's really the Belfast duet. Uh, we, uh, we just got together, like with zero budget, and made a little piece of theatre that had to live by the cut of its jib. You know, we had a very simple set. We got enough money for a string quartet. And we just played around with one very, very basic idea. And that set in motion a chain of events, which became the ensemble. What I discovered in doing that was that there was there was a real appetite for civic pride in the city of Belfast. Mm-hmm. In that there was nothing called Belfast in the title. If anything, people seemed very shy of talking about it or using that word. Mm. Um, and I felt there was an opportunity here to create a company that could not dominate art forms, but it could sit in the middle of many art forms, opera, Mm -hmm. classical music, scenic design, contemporary art. And if it wasn't tied down to the infrastructure of a building or a venue, it might be able to be a little conduit for lots of organizations. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it evolved. And then we started to literally sit in the middle of lots of bigger organizations. And key to that was like festivals. So Mm -hmm. we would go to festivals and say, look, you, for example, Outburst Queer Arts Festival have been brilliant to us. And we kind of went to them and say, look, are you interested in more classical music projects? So then we started to investigate classical music and that became the Ulster Orchestra with Outburst. And we sat in the middle of that and then added a lot of contemporary design elements. That's kind of, how the company started now it's not necessarily where I want the company to go as a next step Mm. because really and I suppose this comes down to same shit as well you know I was really inspired down there by the idea of a an ensemble or a troupe that come together repetitively so that each mistake and each triumph is learnt and remembered that's mm. the big thing that you remember all of these things. Yes. And you move on to the next show or the next performance and you bring all of that with you. Yes. So 
the one mistake that you never make is that you say to everyone at the end of the contract, okay, I'll never see you again, and you hire a new troop. So that's what we do. We have, I suppose, collected a rag bag of freelancers, musicians, actors, visual arts people, video designers, mm-hmm. and filmmakers. And instead of using one and then moving on to the next one, I kind of create a scenario or an idea for a play or a piece. And those component parts start to muse on that. And it's the same people who made the previous one. Yeah. So we just add to that. And like I was shocked at how quickly that was embraced. Yeah, because um, you get that, you get, I, I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about from my perspective, that shared um, almost experiences and then language and then shorthand so that you don't have to keep explaining maybe yeah. why you want to do something or where it's coming from. Like we have had uh, technical get outs with the ensemble, which have had, let's say the Ulster Orchestra, 60 musicians and, you know, 180,000 pounds worth of um, projectors in the air. And you would imagine that those would be like military operations, but the people that have come in to work with us have been shocked at the shorthand that everyone has because mm-hmm. those get outs and strikes are so effortless because we've all been working together on so many projects. That yeah. In a sense, we don't even do a schedule. Yeah. Yeah. It just all happens. Um, <laughs> I've seen people been quite taken aback by that. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. And it's the same in, you know, in musical rehearsals, we've now, I think, evolved into a set of 12 orchestral musicians that we're working with again and again. Mm -hmm. And the ease with which they just lock into unison sound. Brilliant. Totally priceless. And if they've been working with those singers or those actors uh, or video designers, they they kind of know the pattern of what's going to go wrong, what's going to go right, where we have to give people more time to learn something. They're not shocked by the fact that I provide the music about 20 minutes before we open. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. know, oh, yes, I, I'm familiar with that one. You remember that? Um, <laughs> you know, that, uh, that, that is such an amazing skill that I actually get very emotional around it. And Yeah, brilliant. The performers and the musicians and the technicians have become so used to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To them, it's just a second language. But I, I actually find it incredibly emotional watching it happen. Wow. Because, um, like, the ensemble is something that dominated theatre practice. And luckily, it's still with us in dance and orchestras. But that was how we did it for hundreds of years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, ra- ran away and joined the circus and they find another family and they made stuff in rap. Yeah, exactly. And they, you know, they became another family to people. Yeah, yeah. Some, somewhere around the 1960s, this concept of director's theatre came into, uh, particularly in the UK, and just wiped them all off the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. And I think to the absolute detriment of theater and mm-hmm. um yeah i agree because you know the the greatest plays of in history the plays that we're doing again and again you know be that hamlet or anything like that i mean we're all written for troops and ensembles of actors 
yeah yeah and when you when you um if we go so you're talking about sort of your vision and that you see things as well as hear them I guess because you're a composer and you like to see the scenery or you like to work with the actors or you like to you know talk about the lighting design when you were when you were younger and you were training to become a musician or you were studying music yeah did you always think that that would be you know that kind of because I I sense that from you when you worked with us um you know that you understood all of the bits it wasn't just about your music or mm-hmm. how that worked but when you were studying to be a musician was that always those pictures were they I call them pictures because that's how I think about it could you see all that in your future almost or was it always just the music when you were younger no it was it was all of them I mean actually to the detriment of the music because mm-hmm. uh music for me is always a component part of many different things mm-hmm. um you know, telling stories in different ways. And for me, it's telling stories on stage. I mean, I'm not a filmophile. I don't want to write music for film. I don't see any kind of future myself doing that because I literally just don't respond to it. Um, But I have always been totally in love with auditoriums. Mm. I've always been in love with actors, you know, and, you know, when when I was young, um, there were two types of musicians. There were the ones that were in the practice room doing their Mozart. <laughs> and then there were the, the weirdos that were in the rehearsal room with the actors. And I was always in the rehearsal room because I never imagined a future where I would be, let's say, second violin in a famous string quartet in Prague or a famous conductor or a composer of piano music. Like I, I'd never for a second considered that. If anything, I thought I might be an actor. Yeah. Um, so to me, it was, it was always from a theater bent mm. and music would be a huge component in that. So music in a sense almost happened by accident. It was something that I was using as a language to express other stories. I mean, I still think of music just as something that I use on the side. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, the, and actually the words and the mise-en-scene and the the whole, the structure behind the thing that needs the music is really what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think to my detriment, I actually don't spend enough time on the detail of the music or think about mm-hmm. it. It's, it's really, that's like the color but yeah. yeah it's one part of something sure sure and did you did you play music as a kid like as a very young kid was it always go was that the the little path you were going to take with music um I I had a strange relationship with music when I was young in that um my brother played the saxophone and he still does you know very very proficiently uh and he was a bit of a genius you know and I wanted to play music but in those days they used to come around school with this hearing test oh yes (laughs) and you used to have to I think they would play two notes and they would say which one's higher and which one's lower and I was one of those kids that always wanted something wrong with them you know I always wanted to be like I couldn't understand that I wasn't special in any capacity (laughs) 
So, like, if you sent me for an eye test, I would claim to be blind just so I could get glasses. You know, just for actually, drama. Just for drama. Yeah. But actually, there was. I was. I like. I never broke a bone. I never. You know, nothing was ever wrong with me. I was so boring. And <laughs> I think what happened was they did that hearing test, and I must have just seen this as an opportunity to say I need a hearing aid. Because or something, I can't. I can't literally understand what happened. Because the next day they came in with French horns and clarinets and violas and all of this stuff, and um, I didn't get one, and I was completely devastated. Um, and then my brother, who played the saxophone, started petitioning the nuns, as it was in those days, <laughs> for for about five six years, and eventually. There was an old clarinet that was broken that was found in a storeroom. And I was given that when I was 11. Okay. And that's how I started. But it was literally, yeah, my brother was, I think, petitioning and blackmailing the nuns. And God knows what he did. But that, <laughs> that was how I got one. Actually, the orchestral associate of the Belfast Ensemble, believe it or not, Eve McGee, was in that class. Oh, Okay. She's from American <laughs> too. And um, just as the fates conspired, Aoife and me were in the same primary school. Okay, wow. Uh, under the same age. So she got a viola. I sometimes wonder, uh, did I just start the Belfast Ensemble to victimise Aoife McGee? You <laughs> got an instrument and I didn't. Uh, so, so I had a lot of making up to do. Realistically, I should have started when I was about seven. Okay, okay. And did you study music after school? Yeah, I yeah. did. So then I did all my clarinet grades and I did, I was studying for diploma in clarinet mm. when I was just done my GCSEs. And then I kind of gave up the clarinet because I was bored of it. Okay. And I wanted to move on to violin. So I kind of became the world's worst violin player. And then I went to York University okay. to study with, which at that time, I mean, it's still very composition-led, but I went to study with a guy called David Blake. Uh, I kind of fell into that, and he was he had studied with Hans Eisler in East Germany, and it was a very kind of theatrical, Brecht-led style of Soviet communist song. Mm. Um, and then that was, I thought that was totally amazing, and there were, there were a series of us that were all in the same year, like Adam Meredith and Gabriel Prokofiev and Emily Hall, and they... And we were all supposed to go on, I think, and do a further year or three years at the Royal Academy or the Royal College. And I, I think, foolishly decided not to do that mm. uh, and went and took a job in theatre immediately afterwards. Now, there's part of me that goes, my life would be completely different had I gone down that conservatoire route. Sure. But actually... I think I wouldn't have responded to it. But when when you came down to us, what was your relationship with traditional music at that point? Was there much exposure to it in your world or was it sort of something that was, I mean, we're all sort of, it's in the back of our heads, I suppose, in this yeah. country all the time. Uh, well, my, the music flows in my family via my mother's father. Okay. And his family who were all, very serious traditional musicians. Okay. Uh, and he and his family, the McQuillans, they all played, you know, flock hills and stuff like that and played all different types of flutes. And 
it had kind of skipped, whether intentionally or unintentionally, my mother's kind of generation. You know, it was a very difficult time, I think, in Northern Ireland at that yeah. point. Sure. Uh, and traditional music meant something. Mm-hmm. To actively engage or send your children out to traditional arts in Northern Ireland in the 80s was, it's not that it was a bold step, but it was an intentional step. And at that time, I think a lot of parents just wanted their kids to get through school and get jobs and be safe. So there might have been a sense of it endangering or and that it might be easier just to not take that up. Yeah. So there was a real move when I was a child to not engage with traditional arts, but, you know, to play the trombone. Yeah, right. Uh, and the other side of that might be that, you know, it's something that I've always felt that in Northern Ireland, you know, traditional arts and traditional music have been erased. Mm. So bringing back of traditional arts is is a job of work here sure people have been very successful with it i mean i'm um i've always been very taken with you know the layout of the city of belfast you know i went to school in belfast i love the city but i I do find it complex and problematic and there's um i remember you know at the start of lockdown when they were pearling down statues yes and i got very kind of vexed about this because in England and in America and other countries, there was a sense of tearing down public monuments that represented the worst of society and editing history. Where I felt in Belfast, there was almost nothing to edit. It was the reverse. Okay. We, needed, we needed to put history up. Like, for example, there's a, there's a building in the center of Belfast Uh, called the assembly rooms which is currently lying derelict but it's officially you know number one Belfast and it is the location of the first ever Irish Harpers festival and it's where Bunting um, notated over a weekend you know he was like 17 and Mm -hmm. he notated the last of the courtly Harpers on their you know metal stringed harps And the city of Belfast then adopted some of these elderly harpers and paid for them to live out the rest of their lives in the city of Belfast. And many people would say that this act was the first official recognition of the Gaelic arts and of taking traditional Irish music and saying, this is the music of Ireland. This is the art of Ireland. And it is not something that we've been told to believe, which is that it's, you know, buried six feet under a bog by somebody mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. It is a courtly <laughs> music that has been passed on to the last of the Irish aristocracy who have now left. Mm-hmm. And that this needs to be preserved. And that that one act could be seen as the spark that lit the entire nationalist movement in Ireland that ended up in 1916 Mm. but in any other country or any other city the roads around that building would be called Harp Street or Bunting Street 
you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but in Belfast, they're North Street, Waring Street. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, building, the building's derelict. Yeah, wow. And there's one tiny little plaque on the side of it. But in musical history, it's absolutely revolutionary. Mm -hmm. The rise, the raising up of traditional arts in Ireland, particularly in the 19th century, was seen as a boon to Hungarian music to Russian music, um, you know, you could trace the music of Mazorsky back to that, but you know, that fact of Glenka, um, of uh, Vorjak, uh, all of those great composers from Eastern Europe who saw that traditional arts and traditional musics were not something that we needed to condescend. You know, we needed to actually say, this, this is the fabric. Mm, the source almost, yeah. Yeah. And, in a sense, Western music has been convinced that or has been brainwashed or whitewashed into thinking that the source of sophistication in all music comes from the church. And that's not true. It comes from the taverns and it comes from fields and it comes from people's homes. Mm. Um, that's where all music starts. Yeah, from people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And not from huge vaulted buildings with choirs. And Ireland was... I suppose the first nation to do that and to really knit musical signs mm. with the concept of pride in national spirit mm. by the simple act of writing down the tunes. Mm. Um, so it's a complex narrative in the north of Ireland. Sure. Uh, to do with that. Um, and luckily now, you know, that has started to evaporate. And people see that these are things that the new generation can play without it having the absolute meaning that it had in the 1980s. Yeah, the weight of it, yeah. Yeah, it was, it's not that you avoided it when you were a kid, but also when you're a teenager in Northern Ireland, as I was in the kind of 90s, you know, our world was very much, you know, Nirvana and the American. Yeah sound and we were kind of tired of anything to do with the troubles sure like wanted absolutely nothing to do with it and that that put a parity in musical arts with Irish traditional music and protestant orange flute bands yeah, yeah there was a period of time when they were considered kind of equally as problematic mm -hmm. and there were just there was a just one big generation that just didn't want anything to do with any of it. I suppose one of my journeys is coming back to that and mm. saying that, that you know we need to reclaim that and that it can't be weaponized in I think the way that it was. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks. Back then. Yeah, brilliant. In all of your uh, endeavors since I've spoken to you last and your writing and your directing and your award congratulations on your Irish Times Theatre Award Thanks. have you got or do you remember a moment uh, I ask sort of everyone that comes on the show this question where a pivotal moment I guess it may have been a challenge that may have been a big challenge uh, that that you remember well and that perhaps you'd like to share yeah I, I you know you'd emailed me about this and I, I thought about it um, uh, there are so many that 
I actually thought all of the moments that have really changed my career and changed my life have been to do with meeting other artists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was greatly influenced by, I got to know very briefly, I suppose for a period of time, um, Stephen Sondheim and that completely changed my world and in a sense I'm very annoyed that I was much younger than I am now because now of course I would be like oh my god but at the time I was just you know I was a kid yeah I you know I think I tried to borrow ten dollars from him at one point you know uh, (laughs) know, uh, there were a lot of people in my life like that that just by coming into their orbit they totally changed my perception of who I am as an artist. And it took me a very long time to reach a conclusion with that. But if I was to chisel out one of those moments, um, it was many, many years ago. Uh, it was just before I met you, actually. I had I had written a song cycle called Ten Plagues with uh, the British writer Mark Ravenhill, who, you know, Mark is kind of a seminal European playwright, I suppose you could say. Um, mm. And we were match made by someone and they said, look, we think you're going to make something very special together. And we decided to write this adaptation of Dario Fo's um, Journal of the Plague Year. But Mark, you know, was shifting it towards an allegorical retelling of, of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. And the moment from that was a huge production in my life because it was probably the first time I created something where I saw the power of classical form. So it wasn't the music that was changing it or indeed the text. It was, it was the form dictated everything else. And that was by looking at something as old fashioned as a song cycle in the style of Schubert. And putting something extraordinary beside that, which in that instance was a pop singer called Mark Almond. The moment that always sticks out for me in that was when we decided to showcase the work that we had done at the start. You know, Mark, uh, everyone's called Mark in this story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the playwright Mark Ravenhill got the Royal Court for an afternoon, which seemingly was kind of like nothing to Mark Ravenhill, but to me, this was the most exciting thing that had ever happened in my life. Absolutely. Uh, And Mark Almond isn't a reader of music. Okay. So he had decided out of these 10 songs, he was only going to perform three. And we decided to get an opera singer who would sing three and a, a musical theater singer who was brilliant. Both of these other guys were top of the range excellent musicians able to read and very very accomplished in their chosen careers mm-hmm. and there was Mark Almond in the middle of this with very very little rehearsal struggling to find the notes okay and I just remember at the time thinking this is such a car crash why have we got this <laughs> pop singer from the 1980s who can't really decipher the music quite yet um and it's going to take a very very long time to get this and he can't even sing all of the songs <laughs> i've had to hire these two people 
this is going to be embarrassing. He's going to be showed up by an opera singer and a big musical theater singer. Mm-hmm. At the moment that I was in the auditorium and the lights went down, the opera singer sang his bit, No Perfect, and then the musical theater singer came and he sang his song, of course, No Perfect, and totally brilliant. And then Mark Almond came up to the microphone and, you know, Mark's quite a small, slight man. And he just started singing the song. And of course, the notes were a little bit all over the place because he hadn't long with them. And he felt fragile on stage. And he just stole the show. The whole place went completely silent. And I realized in the blink of an eye, everything I thought about perfection and musical perfection was completely wrong, mm-hmm. completely wrong. That you cannot, uh, you cannot replace God-given presence. Mm-hmm. And also that the material isn't enough. You know, that you can have as many sophisticated chord changes as you want or as many fancy dance steps, but it's not enough. The subject and the person performing it have almost got to bring their own narrative. Mm-hmm. And that narrative has got to be known by the audience. Mm-hmm. And in that instance, Mark Allman, what I hadn't seen was that he was communicating a story of surviving the 80s to this audience that I could never write. And that made my music considerably more powerful and when he stumbled over a few notes the it's not that the audience forgave him it's that they saw the fragility of someone Mm -hmm. and they saw that the music was slightly too difficult for him but yet he was going to do it and he ripped the whole thing apart and by the end of it I was just weeping what and this was in a workshop on stage and that also totally revolutionized revolutionized my um, understanding of subject matter. Mm. So when we came to the ensemble many, many years later, yes, we created a piece uh, about the DUP called Abomination. And you could say that that is actually the fruit of that moment. Okay, wow. Because lots of people in Belfast have been saying to me, um, we want we think you should write a, a large scale work for the ensemble and it should have an operatic bent and we need a large force and you should choose the lyric theater the kind of national theater of northern ireland yeah um, and a huge amount of subjects were proposed uh, i remember thinking at the time this is where i need to remember that mark almond moment we yes. need to bring something into the auditorium before a single note is played mm. and mm. For me, that became uh, the allegedly homophobic texts of the DUP. So that show almost starts from the minute you see the poster. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, the Those sentences, those politicians, all the stories you've heard, the images of Ian Paisley, the idea of it being an opera, 99% of that show's work has happened before you buy a ticket. Yeah, I agree. And it was exactly the same with Mark Almond. When you mm. heard that Mark Almond was going to sing a song about surviving AIDS <clears throat> in the 1980s, but that it was going to be by Mark uh, 
Ravenhill. Yeah. And this totally unknown little gay Northern Irish person. <laughs> the show was done. Yeah, yeah. And is that, that must be, uh, you know, is that what drives the work as well? Does it, does it always have to be that, you know, deeply personal? Uh, does it have, you know, the, you can ask somebody why you do what you do or, or what drives you. And obviously you're writing about these things that are, you know, let's say, for example, struggle, struggle is universal. Yeah. You know, but does it have to have that deeply personal slant for you as well? Obviously, it comes from you, but does it always have to have that? I mean, I, I, if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I would have had a completely different answer. Mm. But I mean, I went actually just after I left you guys and stuff, I had to go on my own very terrible journey with, um, alcohol mm. and it took me a long that had been something that had been bubbling for a long while and it just kind of reached ahead and it became very life-threatening and jeopardized basically everything in my life and I realized when that reached climax I was just deeply unhappy with where I was in life that was sure. the problem yeah and that really forced a huge amount of issues Mm. and I had to take some time out and just completely confront that I mean thank god I did or I'm, I'm absolutely convinced I'd be dead and yeah. um when I came out of that there was a massive step change in the work that I made uh I don't know if it's better music or it's worse music but what it is is when I started to create pieces if I wasn't completely sold on why I was making it I would just go, what is the point? Previously, I would have said, oh, you know, I would convince myself that there was a reason I needed to do this. You know, sometimes it was, oh, it's a thousand quid. I really need a thousand quid. And, <laughs> you know, and then I would, I would be deeply unhappy after these jobs. And I, I just, you know, my reward structure changed. And that <laughs> I, after you go through, I think, uh, an experience of that magnitude, mm it does force you inside yourself and you go, okay, well, look, as an artist, I'm not going to live till I'm 180. So I, there is a clock ticking. So if you're going to spend so long on a piece, which in a case of orchestral music or a piece of theater, or you'll know yourself, like I remember you carrying around an A4 sheet of paper, which was, or was several all stapled together or whatever. And it was like a, a pencil written map. Mm. she had carried for such a long time I remember being so taken with that as well mm. that you had formulated everything and you refused to even like type that out yeah, yeah. You know, it was it had, it had to be that document yeah yeah like a, a precious object mm. it it's it's that it's that it becomes so important and you've invested so much time that it must be the right piece and it must speak personally to you you have to investigate, you know, is this of worth to me, my artistic practice? Mm. Is there anything I can say within this that no one else can? Mm. So that does drive it into yeah. a sense of, not, not biography, you know, but something that you give a shit about. Absolutely, yeah. There's a clarity for sure. Yeah, yeah in, in the work in the last few years, definitely. And so now you're taking your new opera to the Abbey. Well, the old opera, yeah, the um, yes, the old opera, but it's that's it became a corona, a corona victim. Um, 
we, yeah, had so many plans after that opened. Yeah. It, late 2019 and then of course COVID hit um, and it was all put to bed and we did a lot of other stuff and then the new artistic directorship of the Abbey Theatre um, immediately got in touch like Katrina actually texted me I don't really know Katrina and she just found me on Facebook and she said um, we'd love this to come down I actually thought it was a joke she just said I'd really love this to come down and we kind of worked with them to see what the logistics are and mm-hmm. they have been a, I think it's an incredibly brave and brilliant move from them to program you know what is a, ostensibly a politically very risky thing mm-hmm. and it's also you know it's, it's new opera but it's also opera that I think is accessible to an audience and has a comic edge but it's also incredibly serious yeah and it's from the north, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's I think a piece of work from the north that brings a story that the south really need to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So what that will facilitate, I think, is it effectively resurrects the show, and it means that we can then take on uh, further tours or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it means that I can bring a lot of people from Belfast and the UK to Dublin and kind of say, you know, guys, you need to kind of copy this. Yeah, yeah. But also to show it. I mean, what does it mean that it's going to be on the national stage in the Abbey? That's, you know, it's amazing. I'm like, oh, my God, this is the first time a new opera from Northern Ireland is playing on the Abbey stage. Like, yeah, this theatre is older than the state yeah yeah no it's massive it is it is a huge huge occasion for for you guys and for oh it's a bit of the like the the performers are just can't quite believe this is happening yeah. um so that's that's totally amazing will you get to dublin to see it oh yeah 100 percent. are you bringing the gang I'll bring, I'll bring a gang, no problem. I'll rent a minibus. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I, I mean, I, I would, it's running from, I have the dates here in front of the 24th of March until the 2nd of April. Yeah, that's it. So that's its first, uh, it's comeback tour, I suppose. So also, I'm also really excited to see um, the difference in reaction between people in the South, people in the North. I mean, I, it's such a weird dynamic because you have these countries that are so close together mm. that share so many artists and yet sometimes can fail just a million miles apart. Yeah. And artists in Northern Ireland, I think can feel closer to artists in Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, just because of the way the system is. So we looked to down south with complete jealousy now because mm-hmm. of you know the money that has gone into supporting arts infrastructure uh and the opportunity to drown there but also the network the familial network that i think is existing down south there is such a sense down south of you know kerry is kerry mm. and they might talk to me and me might talk to Wexford, and that they fee it feeds like a federal system where yeah each county has its own identity and its yes. weight and its own council who mm. supports artists and 
I mean, I think that is totally brilliant. Yeah, I know it is. Yeah, really have that. If anything, we're looking to all our conversations end in talking about Liverpool or Cardiff or Glasgow or Manchester. And, you know, there's a sea between us and them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And if Abomination or a company like the Ensemble is able to take our stories and bring them down south on scale, Mm. I think that's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at you know, small shows. I just, I'm a bit, I'm just a bit crap at them. Uh, you think big. No, it's actually, believe it or not, it's, well, you'll know this with big company, you know, it's actually easier with bigger forces. Yeah. You yeah. have more colors. You have more staging opportunities. You yeah. have more opportunities to disguise your mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you have more people to blame when it all goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's it's much easier to do. What's uh, in the pipelines for 2022 for you? Are you still writing and working with the ensemble? Yeah, we are um, planning next steps. It's all been a little bit hijacked by Abomination, but we think coming out of that, mm-hmm. there's a few shows that I'm I'm trying to develop. I. I, I know that I want to get more of a sense of the spoken word back. Mm. So I want to work a little bit more at that and create something which is a little bit less narrative. And we're working on an orchestral piece called the 1972 Project, which mm. I don't know what that's going to be, but it's it's a 12-movement work about events in Belfast in 1972, which will probably be an art installation. And... Mm. Then, I mean, I'm hoping to be working on a giant jazz musical for the Lyric Theatre, but at some point in the near future. And then there's just a load of things. I'm working on a children's opera in Cologne. Oh, wow. And I think a big piece in Romania for their city of culture. And then... Fantastic. uh, What else? Oh, I've got a violin concerto. Which I, I keep I keep saying that at the end of sentences and stuff, but I, I think that's quite a big deal. And I, I keep forgetting. <laughs> you see, that's case in point. The first the things that I list are always, oh, I've got this theater, oh, there's a musical yeah. now, and there's loads of costumes. And then at the end you're like, shit, I have like that like a shirt on. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're busy. That's all I'll say. Yeah, Ooh, no, it's well. it's brilliant, but like my big achievement this year is like I got a cat. Oh. Yeah, I got a cat called Mongo, and that's um, yeah, it's strange. I something that small can kind of put your life in focus. Sure, sure. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm up to. Connor, that was great. Thanks for the chat. All right, listen, <laughs> I'm going to let you go because you're a busy man. That's all right. Well, look, thanks very much, Joe. Thanks for listening to our podcast, which was edited by Tom Hannafin. To find out more about Chiemsa and our exciting spring programme of events, head to our website www.chiemsatira.com. You will also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, bye bye.